It's time to take your career to the next level. With over 150 graduate degree programs, the Catholic University of America, located in Washington, D.C., provides world-class academics with a student experience that educates the whole person, mind, body, and spirit. Whether your professional calling is in engineering, nursing, social work, or any of our other exceptional degree programs, encounter the best of everything that Catholic University has to offer and discover the best in yourself. Learn more today at catholic.edu forward slash gradadmissions. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It's Friday, February 26th, 2016, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. And I'm Kishore Hari. Each week, we bring you a new, in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at inquiringshow.tumblr.com, on Twitter at inquiringshow, and on Facebook. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. This episode is sponsored by The Great Courses Plus. The Great Courses Plus is a new video learning service from The Great Courses. With it, you can watch as many of their nearly 5,000 video lectures as you want, at any time, from anywhere. They have lectures on subjects like history, science, philosophy, or even photography. They're offering Inquiring Minds listeners an offer to try The Great Courses Plus free for one month. That's unlimited access to the entire The Great Courses Plus library, all completely free for a month. To sign up now for your one-month trial, go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash inquiringminds. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash inquiringminds. Okay, let's be honest with each other. We've both spent more hours in the lab than we care to admit. Oh yeah, some of the worst hours of my life. Hey, let's just say I have a love-hate relationship with time in in the lab, but there's one particular lab that is very close to my heart, my kitchen. Do you use science in the kitchen? No. Not at all? It's not a place where you want to experiment (laughs) or, or even use that sort of critical thinking? You know, this is one of those times when I'm so in awe of you because ever since I had a kid, like my time in the kitchen is just about, you know, getting things done getting you know just just it's not fun anymore you know because i just feel like i don't have time for it and you you have a kid too and yet you're like you know cooking it's a testament to my wonderful wonderfully patient wife um but i get it most people don't view their naturally treat their kitchen as a true scientific hub like no one's really running control experiments and and treating with rigor but our next guest absolutely goes that route so you don't have to Kenji Lopez-Alt is the managing director of Serious Eats, which is one of the best, best culinary sites on the internet. He's written an award-winning column there on a scientifically-minded home cooking ideal. He's also the author of The Food Lab, easily my favorite new uh, cookbook. It's on the science and cooking, all designed, again, for the home chef. And I've tried so many of his recipes, but Kenji really doesn't want you to take his like recipe work as a gospel. And that makes me like even more excited about his book. Like, how do you approach cookbooks and cookbook recipes? 
So I like pictures. I'm into the pictures food porn. Are great. <laughs> so if it's got pretty pictures, that'll usually capture my eye. Uh, and then, you know, yeah, the simpler the better. So, uh, you know, a lot of Jamie Oliver cookbooks in my kitchen. But we also have a collection of, you know, Bay Area based cookbooks. So we have Tartine and we have, you know, some Thomas Keller and we have. But, you know, those things just look nice on the shelf. I never crack them open. Maybe I but should like, give you a copy of the Food Lab because the first like 30 pages of the book are like, these are the ways of thinking that you have to sort of really appreciate to get into a scientifically minded cooking headspace. Like you have to understand that you have bias, that you have to, yeah, that you have bias when it comes to cooking, that you have to recognize that you have, if you want to really approach this as a a scientific endeavor, you got to write some stuff down. You have to make observations. You have to actually introduce a control if you really, really, really want to assess how much change you're making. Hmm. It's it's great for the science nerds out there. It is it is an amazing introduction. It takes like a hundred pages before you get to a recipe. It's awesome. Wow. Well, maybe this will put the fun back into cooking for me. So my conversation with Kenji will be our interview for this week. Indre, any news catch your eye? Yeah. So there's a study. It's a, just a couple of weeks old, but I still keep thinking about it. Um. So when I had just had the baby, uh. I actually developed a terrible habit. Oh, I want to hear this. Um, uh, drinking alone by yourself. No, no, I had that habit beforehand. <laughs> <laughs> That's what led to the baby. <laughs> Not alone. But anyway, uh, no, no, I'm just kidding. Um, but no. So uh, I started checking Facebook on my phone. Like uh just constantly? I didn't even have the Facebook app on my phone until I had the baby and I was nursing at all hours and I would find myself just sitting there like trying to get through this nursing thing. I, you know, it was never an easy thing for me. And I, you know, I know this is, don't judge me, bad mother, right? But I used to pull out my phone and I'd check my email and, you know, it had been five minutes since my last email check. And so that would just make me feel anxious <laughs> if there were no emails or I would have like, you know, the thousand emails that I've been ignoring. So that just made me anxious. So I downloaded Facebook and I started getting addicted to checking Facebook. And Facebook is abjectly kind of terrible to a certain extent. Well, it doesn't really inc- improve your mood. Let's put it yeah. that way. And in fact, researchers at the University of California, Irvine, have now shown that I am not alone. But there's a lot of people obsessed with Facebook. What, like, no, but why? That when you're sleep deprived, you're more likely to check Facebook. I, I'm assuming they, they mean like that sort of obsessive checking where you're not really going there with purpose? Is that yeah, what? when you just pull it out several times a day because you're tired and it turns out that lack of sleep leads to online browsing and a lot of people and specifically Facebook because, and I quote, it's lightweight, it's easy, and you're tired. Wow, I could totally relate to this. So I use Reddit that way. So like past like 1230, 1am, you can find me just like randomly looking at memes on Reddit, like with no apparent reason. Yeah. And, and it's like... I'm tired and I want to go to sleep and I don't know why I'm doing that. Yeah. So so the researchers focused on 76 undergraduates who had a sleep debt, right? So that's the difference between the amount of sleep they really need versus the actual amount that they experienced. And they found that the bigger your sleep debt, the worse you felt and the more you relied on Facebook. Now, wait a minute. Didn't we find out that the sleep debt wasn't like totally a real thing? Or was it? That oh, we it's cl- a real thing. It's just that you don't, you can't just make up your sleep debt on the weekend. Oh, yeah. That's you can't Matt just Walker pay down us. the debt. Gotcha. That's right. That's right. 
So anyway, so I thought this was really interesting. It kind of validated the fact that, yes, I developed a habit. And apparently I'm not alone. A lot of undergraduates at the University of California, Irvine, have the same problem. <laughs> well, you're in good company then. So yeah, help me help me kick the habit. <laughs> so that's it for news. Let's take a short break and we'll be back with my conversation with Kenji Lopez-Alt. This episode is sponsored by Home Chef. With Home Chef, you get all the fresh ingredients you need, plus instructions to cook restaurant-grade meals in under 30 minutes, all delivered straight to your door weekly. These are chef-designed, restaurant-quality recipes, including rustic vegetarian tart with spinach, roasted red peppers, and goat cheese, maple miso-glazed salmon with Brussels sprouts and apple, Parisian bistro steak with creamy potatoes and green beans. I'm getting hungry just thinking about it. You get recipe cards with step-by-step instructions making cooking accessible. You'll be able to cook chef-driven, healthy, restaurant-grade dinners in a flash. These are nutrient-dense, perfectly portioned meals tailored to your unique dietary needs. No more waiting in line in the grocery store, planning out what to cook, or resorting to takeout. And each meal is under $10. Visit homechef.com slash minds and use code minds at checkout for $20 off. That's homechef.com slash minds and code M-I-N-D-S. Rediscover home cooking with Home Chef. And this episode is sponsored by The Great Courses Plus. The Great Courses Plus is a new video learning service from The Great Courses. With it, you can watch as many of their nearly 5,000 video lectures as you want, at any time, from anywhere. They have lectures on subjects like history, science, philosophy, or even photography. And they're offering Inquiring Minds listeners a new introductory offer to try The Great Courses Plus free for a month. That's unlimited access to the entire The Great Courses Plus library, with courses taught by award-winning professors and experts from places like National Geographic, Smithsonian, the Culinary Institute of America, and me. The Great Courses series are normally priced at two to three hundred dollars each, but now you can get unlimited access to the entire The Great Courses Plus library, all completely free for a month. To sign up now for your one-month trial, go to thegreatcoursesplus.com/inquiringminds. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com/inquiringminds. Kenji Lopez-Alt, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So I'm going to get this out of the way for our listeners. I am completely biased over the next <laughs> interview. I'm a huge fan. I've been reading Serious Seats for a long time. So this is going to be the most biased scientific interview I do all year. <laughs> Sounds but, good. Uh, but you know what speaks to me is that you seem to be a nerd at heart that uh, yeah. is just into cooking. <laughs> No, I mean, right now I'm sort of in heaven. You know, we're we're surrounded by uh, by Star Wars and Lego, which are my two favorite things growing up. So, <laughs> were you always destined to be a chef? No, no, absolutely not. Um, you know, my in my family, um, food was something. You know, we had f- dinner as a family every night. My, me and my sisters and my mom. Um, uh, and my dad would have dinner together every night, but but food was not. Uh, it wasn't about the food. It was more about family, and which is still, you know, I guess what food is about bringing people together. But you know, my mom, I think once we left the house, uh, she it's not like she had a deep interest in cooking that she continued to pursue. Um, and and the and the food we ate was, you know, I think she learned how to cook in the in the nineteen seventies. So it was, you know, nineteen seventies Betty Crocker type stuff. So you know. Um, uh, Salisbury steak and and maybe some ethnic recipes that were sort of toned down and and then also some Japanese food because she's Japanese but um, no definitely never really thought I was going to be a cook I didn't really even like food that much um, 
uh, until actually until after I started cooking. You know, I, f- I fell in love with the process of cooking um, before I actually started enjoying food. I became a cook. Uh, that's as, a that seems backward to me. It, it is, yeah. <laughs> you know, my, so I, I was at, I was in college sophomore year, uh, summer after my sophomore year, and for the past few summers before that, I've been working in biology labs, and I was getting a little burned out on that, and also getting a little burned out on the idea of being a biologist for the rest of my life. So um, I thought I'd take the summer off and do something non-academic. Um, and uh, so I went around looking for a job as a waiter, and nobody wanted to hire me as a waiter, but one restaurant I walked into, um, just coincidentally, the manager said, you know, we have a prep cook who didn't show up this morning, um, and so if you can come into the kitchen this afternoon and you can hold a knife, uh, you can have a job for the summer. That's like so. straight out of a movie. <laughs> no, it was really funny, um, and so that's what I did, and uh, so I started cooking, you know, before I really enjoyed food, and, and, and afterwards I started to appreciate food. It was after, you know, I started learning the process of cooking and seeing what goes into making food that I started to appreciate food um, in a different way than um, than I ever did. Um, and, you know, I appreciated the complexities of it, uh, appreciated um, how, you know, the cause and effect of various, of various techniques and processes you apply to it. And that's what really got me into food. It, was there a restaurant or a mentor that really started to blend the science into the cooking? Is that where you got your sort of scientific um, interest in food? No, you know, for, for a long time, this, my science background and my food background were two distinct things. You know, my, my family, um, I grew up with a very scientific, science-heavy education. So my, my father is a, is a scientist. My grandfather's a scientist. And um, so a science education was always... So you had no choice but to become a scientist. Yes, exactly. I'm familiar exactly. with that situation. <laughs> and then when I started working in restaurants, um, you know, at first it was a summer job and then I was doing it part-time through the rest of college and then after college you know I went full-time into restaurants um, and you know on, on the restaurant side of things there wasn't much science at all and and it's not because uh, I think chefs or cooks aren't necessarily interested in that stuff it's just because restaurants are so demanding um, have such huge constraints for for time and resources that you simply don't have the time or the money to do the kind of experimentation. you're just trying to crank stuff exactly out. yeah you, you do it the way that you know is going to work and you make sure that it's on you know it's hot on the plate at the time that the customer orders it and that's all you really have time for. So, um, so I learned how to cook separately from how from my science background, and so it wasn't really until I got into the world of recipe development. Um, and my first job in that field was at Cooks Illustrated magazine. Um, it wasn't until then that I really got the chance to sort of bring the two together. Um, so, I mean, that was that was sort of a, a revelatory moment for me when I got this job at Cooks Illustrated, and I was like. Oh my God! Now I get to like I get to do the two things I love most and stick them together and make a career out of that. That's pretty cool. <laughs> so I have a lot of friends and family who, when I mentioned science and cooking, I was sort of grew up on Good Eats, and mm-hmm. then I mm-hmm. fell in love with Harold McGee, and I kind of had that mindset um, developed with with those outlets. But when I talk to friends and family about science and cooking, they think about like all these fantastical foams you see on like right. Top Chef <laughs> and like, you know, turning one type of food into some other looking right, type right, of right. food. When you think about science and cooking, like what pops in your mind? What image do you want to sort of create for the home chef? Uh, I mean, for me, it's like it's it, it's using science to build a better hamburger or to build a better pizza. And and you know, and and when I say a better hamburger, I don't mean like a deconstructed, reconstructed thing that um, you're going to find at a restaurant. I just mean like if you go to someone's backyard. 
you know, you, you've experienced this yourself. You know, you go to someone's backyard, get a hamburger at a barbecue. Then you go to another friend's backyard barbecue and get another hamburger. They're not the same burger. One of them tastes better than the other, probably, or maybe different from the other. Um, so there, there are things that go into making a hamburger that's going to affect the final outcome. So the question is, what are those factors that make one hamburger better than another? And, you know, you can answer those questions using science. And and that and that's really what it's about for me. It's about um, adding a little bit of control and, and scientific rigor to um, something that a lot of people, I think, take for granted because they do it every day and they do it so frequently. So many of the items in your book seem to uh, tackle something that's part of, lack of a better term, conventional wisdom in the kitchen. Mm -hmm. Is that what you set out to do is try to upend things? Or (laughs) how do you kind of decide what to explore when Um, it comes to, you know, uh, different either recipes or different sort of techniques. Right. Well, so it's it's not something I set out to do. Um, if if you set out to upend things, then you're probably going to end up upending things. And and I think it's it's bad to it's bad to I mean it's bad to go into a, an experiment with bias already built in. So I try to be as fair as possible when I'm doing my experiments. I, I try and set them up in an actual scientifically rigorous way that eliminates bias, um, that makes sure that it's really just about the results and not about the results I want to see. You know. But that said, when I do end up finding out that you know you don't need all this water to cook your pasta or or it's good to add salt to your eggs before you make an omelet um both of you know both of these are things that people have said the opposite for many years um, when you do discover those things it does make it a more exciting story and it makes it much easier to much easier to write um, and obviously much more popular for people to read um, but it, but it's not something i set out to do it why do you think some of those um items have persisted like you need like gallons and gallons of water to cook a good thing of pasta is is it because of of just how we're trained in the in the in the kitchen just to follow recipes yeah, I, th- I mean, I think I think it has to do with the way that um, cooking knowledge gets passed on, and it's and you know, cooking I think is almost always passed on in this sort of master apprentice uh, relationship. Whether it's a whether it's a, a chef and his line cooks or her line cooks, um, or you know, a mother or father and their and their kids, it's it's passed on as like this is this is the way it's done. This is how we've done it, and this is how you should do it because it gets you good results. And and you know, and and I think for most people, if the results are good enough, then there's no reason to question those results. That said, you know, if if there's easy ways to make those results slightly better, um, and of, and of course, better is a very subjective thing. But if there are ways to make them better, or to maybe tune them to your own personal taste, then um, then I, you know, I, I'm fully in favor of throwing out the traditions, or at least modifying the traditions um, in, ser- in search of new ones. Um, you know, pe- people talk a lot about authenticity in recipes, and and um, and and oftentimes, if you if you t- if you write about a very particularly touchy recipe, um, say like. Uh, like Texas style chili, people are very touchy about Texas style chili and about what is authentic and what's not. And and you know I, the whole concept of authenticity and that it has to be made this way. I think it's it's just it's all it's it's a pretty silly one because it's like you know the, the people who were making Texas chili for the first time they they didn't care about they didn't think they were creating this thing that's going to become an iconic dish for two hundred years. They thought okay, I have these chilies, I have this beef, I'm going to put them together and I'm going to put them together in the only way that makes sense because I'm out in the middle of this. Uh, of of these planes, and I don't really have many means to cook them with. Um, so we're not in those situations anymore. So if 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 adding a little bit of fish sauce to your Texas chili is going to make it taste better, then there's no reason to say no to that just because you know the original chili did not have fish sauce in it. So I, I think um, you know o- opening your mind, um, and and especially now we have access to ingredients we have never had before. Um, with the internet, we have access to um, cuisines and instruction on cuisines, and and we can see videos of people making food on the other side of the planet and. And it's just sort of this unprecedented era of, of free exchange of information and, and, um, and as far as cooking goes, ingredients. So 
to not use those things, I think, um, seems, uh, you know, seems a little backwards to me. So I'm a trained scientist, and the idea of applying, like, the same rigor that I applied to my science into the kitchen definitely seems daunting. Right. So let's assume <laughs> that I am an amateurist cook. Right. It's very true that I am an amateurist cook. <laughs> uh, how, like, what kind of th- uh, steps do you want to take if you want to cook this way? Right. With some uh, scientifically minded. Mm-hmm. What kind of things do you do? You sort of tell people to think about when they're going into their kitchen. Well, I mean, the the main one is to is to, and and this is true in any science, I think, is to is to think is is to think in terms of um of what variables there are and and how to isolate them in in order to um, really figure out what the correlations be, are between the way you're cooking something and the final outcome. You know, so so a lot a lot of times, um, and I've I've seen this in some newspapers and and blogs and stuff. People will take two completely different recipes, compare them and say, I like this one better than that one. And and that's good, but that really only answers the question of, is this recipe better than that one? It doesn't really answer the question of what specifically about this recipe is giving me a result that I like better than the than what's going on in this recipe. Because if you have too many variables that are changing, it's impossible to tell what is affecting what. Um, so, and so, you know, so I think the most important thing is to, is if you want to carry out um, kitchen science experiments at home, um, Really think in terms of variables and 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 think about which ones are the ones that are most likely going to affect your outcome, and then test those and and try and, and try and test them in a in an unbiased way, um, and th- you know and that involves making sure that when you're tasting them, preferably you're getting a third party to taste them, like you're you're you're, you're performing these experiments on your family maybe and not telling them which batch is which, um, and and that way you get a much better better idea of what you know what you're going to like going forward, what they're going to like going forward, um, and. Uh, yeah, I mean, and how far do you take this? I mean, do you actually make <laughs> controls? Do you and do you test on your family? Uh, so it, it really depends. Um, some so, sometimes uh, I don't take it too seriously at all. So it, so some recipes, it's like you know, it's so it's the t- flavor of food is such a subjective thing. So for some things, it's like all right, I know what I'm looking for here, and I know what I like. Um, I'm just going to taste it myself and decide what I like better. Sometimes though, it's like I, I want to answer a, va- a basic fundamental question about cooking. Um, so so for example, um, we were talking a little earlier about boiling eggs and and what factors affect how well. Uh, eggs peel, and you can go on on the on the internet and find thousands of anecdotes about this. And and most of the time, the anecdotes go in the form of "I cook my eggs this way; they come out perfect every time, uh, guaranteed." And it's like, okay, well, you haven't actually tried them side by side with another way. And then there's all these other people who are saying they cook them that way and they don't come out perfect. So there's something something wrong there. So those are the kinds of situations where you really actually do want to set it up as rigorously as you can. And um, and for me, it's as rigorously as I can in a home kitchen because I cook everything at out of home. Um, so in those cases I, I I will literally boil hundreds of eggs uh, using slightly different methods in each one and then I'll get third parties to come in peel the eggs without knowing which one is which and then come up with a set of measures to evaluate how easily they peeled so in that case um, I both visually examine the eggs to see how um, like how many pock marks they had in them how much how cleanly the eggs peeled off and then I also um, had people rating each egg they peeled about um, on a scale from one to ten on how easy it was for that peel to come off um, and through that you can get some actual data and 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 you find out that well, the main thing that makes eggs easier to peel is the starting temperature uh, of the water that you cook them in. So plunge eggs into boiling water, and they peel much more easily than if you start them cold and bring them up to a boil. I have to admit, for, as as the amateur cook that I am, it's a little daunting to think about boiling 100 eggs right. and getting people to <laughs> right. come over. Which is why peel. I do it, so you don't have to, right? <laughs> but what kind of, like, if I do want to approach it this way... Uh-huh. 
how do you come up with a question that you want to actually test? Because that's a really hard part in science. So it right. must be equally <laughs> difficult here. Um, so a lot of times it's it's common questions that I've that people have had. You know, there there are, if you if if you go online or, or read in books, there there are questions that come up over and over again about cooking, and there are, and there are also things that people have very strongly divided opinions on, um, or 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 very adamant that are that they are very adamant about, but without much backup. Do you so, have an example of like one that just sticks out to you? Uh, uh, off the top of my head, the first one that I, that I can think of is that, um, you know, when I was a cook uh, in a restaurant, um, when we cooked dried beans, I was told by my chef, you never, ever add salt to the dried beans because it will make their, um, it'll make their shells harden. They won't, they won't cook properly. And I've read this in, in many books. I've heard many chefs say this. Um, and it turns out if you actually test it, it's not true. Um, the, the main thing that affects how, how uh, bean shells soften is... Um, uh, is the pH of the liquid, and in fact, salting, um, soaking, soaking dried beans in salted water overnight can actually make them tenderize um, better than if you than if you use just plain water. Um, so, so this is one of those cases where it turned out to be the exact opposite. And and frankly, I I don't really know how that one. Um, I, I, that one I can't even theorize as to how it got started. You know, some some other ones you can say, all right, well, you know, pasta. Maybe people say to cook it in a large volume of water because with homemade pasta, fresh pastas, or certain like very um, traditionally made uh, pastas that have a lot of starch on the exterior, you run a big risk of the pasta sticking. But with modern pasta that you buy at the supermarket, you know, it doesn't. The rules don't apply anymore. So you you can sort of trace back where the rules started and why they don't apply anymore. But sometimes you just can't. I have to say, as just an aside. Uh, why don't the rules apply anymore to modern pasta? <laughs> like um, this is actually so. This is a new article I'm working on right now that's going to directly contradict something that's in the book and something I've written about in the past. Um, in the book, I've said you never need to use a large volume of water, a large volume of water for pasta. I'm finding out now that in some cases you do. So. With dried pasta, um, it, it can be made in two different ways. So modern pasta that you buy in the supermarket, brands like, uh, say, Berea, which is the most popular brand in the world, the pasta dough gets extruded uh, through Teflon-coated dyes. Um, so they're very smooth on the exterior. And then to dry them out, they use relatively high temperatures, so like 95 degrees Celsius, um, and they dry out within a couple of hours. Now, those very high temperatures uh, set the proteins much much more strongly so that they actually retain their starch better. Um, and because they have very smooth exteriors, excess starch doesn't cling to them. Them, um, during the extrusion or drying process, so when you when you put them in boiling water, they release very little starch. They retain um, they retain a lot more of their contents, so the water doesn't get as starchy. The exteriors don't get as sticky. Old fashioned pastas. Um, so if you buy like a fancy brand um, that is made and some like they usually advertise this, something. not necessarily handmade, but they um, old fashioned pasta is extruded in using brass dyes, um, and so you'll see the pasta has a much rougher exterior because it doesn't come out as smoothly. Um, and then they're dried at very low temperatures, um, usually over the over the course of a couple of days. And so both of those factors. Um, well, one thing they make the top of the pasta taste a little better because they have a, f- a fresher wheat flavor. That rough exterior also makes it easier for them to um, cling on to pasta sauce. Um, but the problem is that it also releases a lot more starch when they cook. Um, so they they have a much higher tendency to stick together or stick to the bottom of your pot. So um, I'm going to so, be modifying my my recommendations. So, if you're so getting... I guess if I wanted to test this, I could just take the the same pasta and rough up one with like a little sand. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> Uh, but that's interesting. So uh, is a lot of this coming through feedback through people that like either readers or Mm -hmm. people sending you notes saying like, my experience is this. Yeah, often. Um, and you know, and that's sort of the beauty of, of the internet age is that when you write an article and you post it online, you get instant feedback. Or if I write a book and people easily have access to me, um, 
they'll send me emails, um, maybe pointing out errors in the book, which I welcome. You know, I, I think in the introduction of the book, I say like, if you find an error, and if you don't find any errors in this book, you're probably not reading close enough or not or not questioning things enough. This um, brings up a, a big scientific sort of uh, quality is that you seem to have a resiliency to failure. Right. <laughs> like, because like you're talking about, oh, find an error in my book, send me a note. I'm excited about that. Right, right. Which I, I hear scientists talk about, you know, finding failures, finding errors in the work as being an opportunity. Oh, yeah. But most of the time when I enter the kitchen, failure equals a bad, <laughs> a really bad night. Right, right. Well, so, you know, what what I do... What I do try and guarantee is that the recipes in the book are going to work as written. I mean, obviously, it's it's impossible to say those things 100%. You know, like, as I'm finding out, the, the pasta recipes in that book, if you're using very specific brands of pasta, some of them might not work because of the volume involved. Um, so so it, it's impossible to say anything is going to work 100% in every situation. Um, and, I, you know, and if and, and anybody is who's claiming that either is lying or doesn't know, you know, it's, it's impossible. So the best you can do is to get closer and closer to the truth and closer to close and closer and closer to foolproof or perfect or whatever you want to call it, um, each time. So, you know, you, you do have to be, if, if you want to keep an open scientific mind, you do have to be willing to go back on things that you said before as new knowledge comes to light. How do you arm yourself uh, in the kitchen. That's a weird way to put it. But I mean, <laughs> if you're going to explore the kitchen this way, uh-huh. there's probably a set of tools or resources that you want to have available yeah. that are key to helping you understand certain variables that are common variables too. Right. I mean, pen- pencil and paper are the most important ones. Really? Uh, That's the one you would say first is just write down your... Oh, yeah, yeah. Write down write down your observations. And and this is sometimes I even forget to do. It's like Or just uh, make observations Make first. observations. Exactly. Exactly. Think about your food critically. Uh, think about the way you're cooking it critically. Um, Take, you know, look at the details, see, you know, when I'm cooking my pasta, is this, is this water cloudier than the other one? Things like that. Um, and, and make sure you write it down so that the next time you do it, you remember. So not, some of these aren't like quantitative, but they're qualitative enough to lead you to a next question. Exactly, exactly. You know, those things are important. I, I'd say, you know, use, having, having a good set of precise tools is moderately important. You know, you don't have to cook with a scale, but um, for a lot of things, if you want to actually be rigorous, you should be using, um, you know, a scale. A thermometer is probably the most useful kitchen tool you can own, especially if you, if you cook, um, you know, if you, if you eat meat. Uh, a thermometer is like the best kitchen tool you, you can have because it's going to make sure that you don't ruin that, you know, $50 steak that you bought or that, that big prime rib or the chicken. Um, you know, it's, it's the only way to really guarantee that your meat is cooked exactly to the right doneness. So I'll um, note that you haven't mentioned like a, a pot or a pan yet, which I think <laughs> is like the first thing that, you know, I've seen other recipe books mention. Right. Or you haven't mentioned anything fancy, like you're not talking about a sous vide or, no. like, or like a centrifuge or something way out there right well i mean you know those are tools that help you cook right now i'm talking about tools that help you sort of um evaluate your cooking or 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 monitor exactly what you're doing um yeah i mean obviously you do need you you do want pots and pans if you cook um but you know tools are tools are just tools like you know and and a lot of people i think get um especially with modern equipment they um you know, they have this thing where it's like you you get the new toy and and you think it's going to solve all your problems. And um, so, like, I'm I'm remodeling my home right now, and we're doing most of the remodeling ourselves. And so, every time like a new project comes up, it's like I get a new. It's like, oh, that's an ex- just an excuse to buy a tool. So it's like I buy a nail gun, and now I just want to nail everything. And, <laughs> and I think all of my problems can be solved with a nail gun. Um, so it's you know, and I think people get into that same mindset with co- cooking, and so they'll they'll buy themselves a sous vide circulator, which is great at some things. It's a tool. It's great at some things, but it's not so great at other things. And so, you know, uh, people, people send me questions. Like I'll post a recipe and they'll be like, this is great. How can I adapt it to sous vide? And it's like, well, 
you, you wouldn't adapt it to sous vide. You don't need to make everything sous vide. Um, you know, there are some things that are good about it and some things that are bad. And, and you know, it's the same thing. It's like you don't, you don't need fancy pots and pans to cook well. Um, they can help you do certain things better. But, um, but you know, no single tool is, is essential um, in, an ars- in an arsenal you know, other, than, other than maybe a knife. Um, <laughs> and, a, and a sharp knife. A that. sharp knife, yes. Preferably a sharp knife. And where do you do mo- most of your cooking? Do you, go, do you have like a, a, a professional commercial kitchen that you do all this testing at with like a big no, staff? No, no. It's all, it's, all, it's all at home, um, uh, which, you know, has, has led to a little marital strife. Um, <laughs> there, there's a time. Um, uh, Is she your chief tester? Taste tester? She and the dogs, yeah, <laughs> big taste testers. Uh, my, no, my neighbors get most of my leftovers. I, and in actually, these, you know, when I started writing the Food Lab, uh, I think seven years ago, um, I was my wife and I were living in a single bedroom apartment in Brooklyn with no windows and a kitchen in the in the dine in the living room. Um, so it was just one, you know, basically a studio with a little bedroom attached, and the kitchen was in the middle of the living room. Um, so. I can tell you with no windows, um, like I wrote the entire hamburger chapter of that book in that apartment. Um, and with no windows, like you, you, my wife would come home and the place would smell like, like a McDonald's, you know, because <laughs> I'd just be cooking burgers all day with no ventilation. Um, uh, these days I have a little more space and, and ventilation. Uh, so, and, and, and luckily now I actually have a lot of, um, all of my friends are like having kids or are pregnant. So I have a lot more people who are willing to take food off my hands. Um, yeah, getting rid of, you know, it, it sounds great. Like I'm making 30 meatloafs this week, but getting rid of 30 meatloafs is not, is not, is not easy. Well, I'm um, signing up for that volunteer <laughs> list. I had a very similar experience. I had a big chicken wing party the, this weekend. And last night at like two in the morning, my wife woke me up and is like, you need to clean everything because right. I can still smell it. Right, right. Like the whole house exudes it. But is that what you're going for in terms of the aesthetic? You like cooking in the home is better for the audience you're trying to reach. Well, yeah, you know, I, I think um, there there is a lot of uh, misunderstanding, I think, about science. And I think a lot of people who aren't scientists think that science is what goes on in labs and science is what scientists do. Um, but but it's not, you know, there, there is that kind of hard science and that professional science. But but science is not, does that's not the be all and end all of science. Science is also something, you know, it's just a method of, um, it's a method of looking at the universe, of understanding the world, and, it, and it's a method of sort of, you know, ordering your thoughts to, to be able to get at, um, uh, at, at truth. Um, and, and, and that's what science really is. And you don't need special equipment. You don't need a laboratory to do it. Um, all you need is literally a pencil and a paper and, you know, and a, and a, a little bit of education as to how science works. Um, so so that, is, that is really the idea. You know, I, I, think, um, I think readers do connect with the fact that... Um, uh, all the experiments I'm doing are things that I'm doing at home, and they're things that, um, if you are so inclined, you can repeat um, in your own home. And and that's you know that's also at the heart of science: repetition and um, uh, and comparing results. So cook often, cook a lot, and write it down. Yes, <laughs> that's a wonderful note. I have to say the the food lab. This is an incredible book. I have not made my way through the entire thing. <laughs> it's it's nine hundred yeah. pages long, but I'm curious. Oh, are there some interesting questions that you're pursuing right now that you can share well um so you know that pasta thing is one that i'm currently in the middle of doing a little more research on um actually somebody read my book um who's a actually works in a food lab um who um advises for a pasta company and he was the one who um first theorized that you know perhaps these older you know older style pastas wouldn't work this way and then when i actually tested it corroborated his results so um uh so so that's something that's that's interesting me right now um you know i like doing fun things also so like right now i'm working on a on a homemade um McRib recipe, um, <laughs> which I think will be I fun. I perked up a little bit too much when I heard that. <laughs> I probably like 
my addiction to McDonald's um, coming through. And then, uh, and then I have I, I I do an annual month of um, straight vegan recipes, um, and that's coming up in March. And that that's always an exciting time of the year for me because I I mean I love vegetables and I love vegan uh, cooking, and and it's just a really interesting challenge for me um, because you're you're cooking with a whole different set of ingredients and um, there's different processes involved. Um, so it's like it's like this whole other side of the cooking world that um, is correlated but is not exactly the same as you know meat cooking. Um, so that excites me. Well, personally, this has been a real treat, and I am now starving. So thank you so much for joining us on Inquiring Minds. Thank you. So did we convince you to become more scientifically minded in the kitchen? You know, he brings up a lot of good points. I I might have to try a few of these suggestions. I think it's interesting that he does this kind of work in this rigorous way, and he documents the process so that you don't have to, like oh, I'm going to find out uh, the best way to peel um, a hard-boiled egg and, like, do an experiment with a thousand eggs. Like, I don't think he's asking you to do that. But I think the um, idea that really spoke to me was uh, was this notion, while he's not setting out to upend conventional wisdom, there's a lot of recipes passed down that, like, have language in them that don't make a ton of sense for modern cooking. And that example of where, like, modern pasta doesn't have like the same sort of like ridges and like sort of deformities that old school pasta that came out of the brass plate. So we don't cook it the same way. We don't have to cook it like with, you know, all the water in the world because it doesn't need it Um, was really interesting. But all that being said, I'm still not sure I have the time to do the kind of scientifically minded cooking he talks about because it's really rigorous. Yeah, no, I mean, I yeah, it's not like I'm going to completely you know, throw on the lab coat and bring out my you know lab notebook and uh, do that. But it, it I, I see where he's coming from when he talks about the fact that we should really, you know, think about the kinds of habits that we have that we bring into the kitchen and how we can change that up. And, you know, that's something that, you know, resonates with me a lot. And, uh, you know, I love it. That, you know, what, there's nothing more satisfying. Well, there are maybe a few things more satisfying, but it can be very satisfying to eliminate a habit that, you know, you've been kind of working on and that just feels really liberating when all of a sudden you don't have to do it that way anymore. Well, I'll say Kenji's chicken wing recipe definitely worked out really well for me. Did it win the Super Bowl? It it won the Super Bowl because that game was terrible. Uh, But for you and all those food prawn advocates out there, they're looking for the pictures. Uh, Kenji took all the pictures in that book, The Food Lab. It's really beautiful. Wow. And um, so I really recommend that cookbook. It's one of like my favorite cookbooks I've come across in a long time, just because I know how thorough he is around process and how much he cares about history. Well, we'll have to add it to our Bay Area collection. So that's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. And also I want to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign, Herring Chen, Nick Cadillac, Sean Johnson, and Anonymous. You can visit our website at inquiringshow.tumblr.com and you can support us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. You can also find us on Twitter at inquiringshow and Facebook and you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas or anything else you'd like to inquiringminds at climatedesk.org like maybe your scientifically hacked favorite cookie recipe. And once again, this episode is sponsored by Home Chef. With Home Chef, you get all the fresh ingredients you need, plus chef-designed recipes, which let you cook restaurant-grade meals at home in under 30 minutes. You can even tailor your Home Chef deliveries to your unique taste profile. Specify your allergies, likes, and dislikes. Home Chef has vegetarian and gluten-free dishes alongside heartier meat options. Visit homechef.com minds and use code minds at checkout for $20 off. That's homechef.com minds and code M-I-N-D-S. 
Rediscover Home Cooking with Home Chef. And this episode is sponsored by The Great Courses Plus. The Great Courses Plus is a new video learning service from The Great Courses. With it, you can watch as many of their nearly 5,000 video lectures as you want, at any time, from anywhere. They have lectures on subjects like history, science, philosophy, or even photography. They're offering Inquiring Minds listeners an offer to try The Great Courses Plus free for a month. That's unlimited access to the entire The Great Courses Plus library, all completely free for a month. To sign up now for your one-month trial, go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash inquiringminds. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash inquiringminds. Inquiring Minds is produced by Food Lab Technician Adam Isaac in cooperation with the Climate Desk. Our research assistant is Caitlin Smith. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Chian. And we're your hosts. I'm Indre Viscontis. You can find me on Twitter at Indre Vis. And I'm Kishore Hari at Science Quiche. See you next week. It's time to take your career to the next level. With over 150 graduate degree programs, the Catholic University of America, located in Washington, D.C., provides world-class academics with a student experience that educates the whole person, mind, body, and spirit. Whether your professional calling is in engineering, nursing, social work, or any of our other exceptional degree programs, encounter the best of everything that Catholic University has to offer and discover the best in yourself. Learn more today at catholic.edu forward slash gradadmissions.